We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad. On the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of Tess on December 12, 1980. It was written by Gerard Brock, Roman Polanski, and John Brownjohn, based on Thomas Hardy's 1891 novel Tess of the D'Urbervilles, Directed by Polanski and released by Columbia Pictures in the U.S. and Wren Productions in France. The last time Roman Polanski spoke with his wife Sharon Tate, she was recommending this book for him to adapt, with her in the lead as Tess. Tate was preparing to fly back to America while Polanski wrapped up a production in Europe, and on August 9th of 1969, Tate and her unborn child were murdered by the Manson family in one of the most highly publicized murder sprees in American history. The film is dedicated to her in the opening credits. Polanski wrote a draft in French with regular collaborator Gerard Brock, which was then translated and expanded by John Brownjohn. Weird name. This was Polanski's first film after pleading guilty to raping a child, and perhaps as a result, the film follows the source material very closely, except that the role of the sexual predator Alec Durberville is toned down from the book. Natasha Kinski was 17 during production, and rumors circulated that she was in a relationship with 42-year-old director Polanski, though both denied it. Three months into production, having shot mostly exterior scenes, cinematographer Jeffrey Unsworth suffered a fatal heart attack. Ghislaine Cloquet shot the remainder of the film, and the two shared the Academy Award nomination and win. This was the first posthumous Oscar win for cinematography, followed so far only by Conrad Hall's work on The Road to Perdition. As we mentioned earlier this year, Anthony Powell took home an Oscar for the film's costumes, and Pierre Guffroy and Jack Stevens also took home Oscars for their art direction. The picture, director, and original score also landed nominations, but no wins. We open on a dirt path as a large crowd marches toward camera. They're still in the distance, and the full credits for the film roll over their approach. The end. No. <laughs> well, to be fair, I like this better than the way we've ended most of these 80s movies where you have this long shot at the end where somebody goes off into the distance right. yeah, and the true. credits roll over it. So I thought this now was better. Now they're approaching. Now they're approaching Instead us. Instead of and Pluto we put it swimming away. Yeah. <laughs> the last credit we see is to Sharon. All the men in the crowd are playing instruments and all the women are in white dresses carrying flowers and dancing. An older man is coming down a path that intersects theirs. He smiles as the crowd passes and continues on his way. A man on horseback greets the older man as Sir John and he stops and turns to speak with the man. He wants to know why this guy keeps calling him Sir John when they pass on this road. He thinks his proper title is plain Jack Derbyfield, the haggler. Apparently, this guy has been trolling him for a reaction. The man introduces himself as Parson Tringham, and he says that while researching the family histories of the county, he has made a discovery. Mr. Derbyfield is a direct descendant of the Durbervilles, 
and never even knew it. Tringham verifies this by observing Mr. Derbyfield's profile. He tells him that his family dates back to Sir Pagan Derberville, who came from Normandy with William the Conqueror. Jack admits that he does have an old silver spoon and a graven seal, but he never thought that that was a true sign of anything. Tringham announces that the rest of the Durberville family lies in rest in a family plot at Kingsbeer sub-Greenhill. The Durbervilles have no mansions or land. They have nothing to their names anymore. So really, Tringham is just baiting him into this conversation so he can puff him up and then knock him back down by explaining that he has nothing to gain from having come from this wealth. Yeah, it, it just also just seems like this guy wants to show off his his knowledge. Yeah. it. I really don't even see why he thought that this was necessary. Like, it's like, it's almost as I if, think he's just teasing him. Yeah, it's like, I just read up about this guy, and when I see him, I'm going to lay into him. Well, he doesn't but even do that, though. He's being so time, passive-aggressive well, about it. He's yeah. just like, Sir John, <laughs> as he goes by every And, day. like, the guy's trying to ask him more questions, and the guy's just still walking away on his horse, like, oh, I gotta go. No, I don't want anything. I don't want to get a beer with you. Let's. Yeah. I gotta get out of here. <laughs> it's not funny anymore. Yeah, he, inv- he invites him for a celebratory beer, but the guy's like, no, nope, you're poor and gross. Jack is excited enough to learn that he is Sir Jack Durberville. He doesn't even care about it not paying off for him at all. The crowd from earlier dances in a field, and a trio of young men come across the crowd. They ask what's going on, and apparently it's a club dance. They announce that their dance partners are still at work, but they're expecting them soon, and they ask these three men to join them. Only one of them has the balls to take the ladies up on their offer. Eventually, more of the dance partners they were waiting on show up, And as the sun is setting, the man leaves to catch up with his friends who abandoned him. Yeah, and we don't find out till later, though, that these are the brothers. And one of them is Angel, who we meet later in the book. Mm -hmm, Correct. Or in the movie. Or both. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. (laughs) Tess stands against a gate, watching her friends dance, when suddenly her father rolls by on a carriage, drunkenly shouting, Hey! Hey! The Bainfield man in the old Wessex with finer skeletons than I! Her friends laugh about it, but she reminds them that their horse died, and that's why he had to hire this carriage. The rest of the girls continue dancing until it's dark out. Tess walks home. Tess arrives home to find her mother cooking for her five siblings. She tries to get changed to help her mom when she announces the exciting news. They've been linked ancestrally to the greatest gentlefolk in the county. Tess doesn't seem to believe any of it, but her father is so convinced that as soon as he got home, he took that silver spoon and went right back to the bar with it. Mom asks Tess to put the little ones to bed so she can go collect their father from the bar. When she gets there, she announces a plan to Jack. She says that they'll send Tess off to the nearest living Durbervilles to claim kin. But the guy told us before, there aren't any more Durbervilles. Right. Yeah. But uh, Jack assumes that these other Durbervilles are imposters from some newer family line that's not as important as theirs, even though they're clearly a rich family, like they have Mm -hmm. a mansion and a massive property. Just as she finishes sharing this plan, Tess arrives to collect both of them because apparently mom's been here for a while with dad and they haven't turned around yet. On their walk home, Tess expresses some reluctance to sell herself to distant family. Mrs. Derbyfield leaves the decision to Jack, who asks how Tess feels about it. When Tess repeats that she would rather not go, that's all Jack needs to make his decision. He's like, ah, I don't like my children making themselves beholden to strange kin. And so then she he already goes, hates the plan. Yeah. yeah. I don't quite understand that. I guess but, maybe yeah. he sobered up and he's like, now you're gone. <laughs> we just cut to the next morning and she's on the carriage on her way there. 
She's dropped off at the gate and made to walk the length of miles of driveway. And when she reaches the house, she realizes that it's very new and very fancy. And she's intimidated and turns to leave when she's caught by a man in the yard. She tells him she's there to see Mrs. Durberville. And he informs her that the lady of the house is an invalid, but that he, as her son, might be able to help with whatever she needs. She's so embarrassed by the wealth that she doesn't even want to tell him why she's here. When she says they're of the same family, he understands immediately that she is a poor relative. At first, he assumes that she is from the Stoke family, and when she corrects him to Durberville, he changes the subject. The man offers her strawberries, and then she asks him for a horse. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not not super hungry. Do you have a horse? (laughs) He tries to feed her the strawberry from his own hand, and she is understandably weirded out by this. He fills a whole basket of strawberries for her and then just starts decorating her with pink roses. He's like tucking them into her hat and putting them over the basket. And in a tent in the yard, he serves her sliced meats, but she insists she must be on her way soon. There's a lot of sliced meats in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, They look so good every time. (laughs) I was so hungry watching this. Tess returns home with a note from the family offering her a position managing their poultry farm. This is on a temporary basis, and if she doesn't fuck it up, they promise that she can have room and board and a decent wage. All the chickens she can kill. (laughs) (laughs) No, you can't kill these chickens. Oh, that's right. Pets. Pet chickens. The next day, Tess is all packed up and ready to leave for the poultry farm. Before she leaves, her father asks her to pass a message to the gentleman cousin. Jack is willing to sell the title of Durberville in exchange for a thousand pounds. And not a penny less. Well, now I come to think on it, he can have it for a hundred. I won't stand on trifles. Fifty. Twenty pounds, tell him, and not penny less. I don't quite, I mean, I, I, I understand that they're desperate. Right. You know, to, to get any money they can. But mm-hmm. I don't quite understand what he's offering here because yeah, he's not really offering in theory anything. they already have that title. Is is he just offering like is this a bribe up? to be I, like I won't call myself a Durberville if you gave me some money. That, I think that's yeah. See, I, 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 I mistook that as uh that he was, like just, he was selling her. No, oh I think uh, the, to me and I and I might be wrong, was that he was selling the whole farm. Like Oh, the title to his farm, as opposed to his yeah, title as like, in like you can you can name. have all of this. Uh, why would he do that? Why Why would anybody want that? <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> they have a mansion. <laughs> yeah, I, I that's what I'm saying. Like, I, I didn't understand what he was selling. I still I th- don't. I thought he was literally saying, "If you give me a thousand dollars, I'll I'll continue calling myself Derby Field, but otherwise, you're gonna people are gonna think we're related." Yeah. So he's like blackmailing him because he knows he's gross. I don't think it's clear, but that those are both great interpretations, guys. <laughs> but I do like that he keeps revising this number down without anyone else saying anything in the room. Mm-hmm. He just keeps on his own like, no, tw- uh, 50, uh, 20. But that's it. That's as far as I'm going to go. Her younger siblings all wish her good luck. They're excited for her impending marriage to their gentleman cousin, <laughs> which is weird. And her mom corrects him that she's just going to work for them to pay for a new horse. Tessa's gentleman cousin races the horses unnecessarily fast downhill away from the Derby Field home. She makes her discomfort known, and the guy doesn't seem to care. He asks for a kiss, and when she refuses, he starts racing the carriage again to piss her off. She decides that she will deal with the horse racing if it means not having to kiss this guy, but he steals a kiss anyway. 
They eventually are going fast enough that her hat is blown off of her head. Well, she does this on purpose, though. Yeah, she kind of she tips pulls, it up. She pulls, the, she, she pulls the hat pin out yeah. so that the hat flies off on purpose. Yeah. And so she hops off the carriage to go collect it and decides that she will be walking the rest of the way because she can't trust him to drive this carriage at a reasonable speed. Tess sweeps up a chicken coop while another servant chops vegetables. The other girl informs her that Mrs. Durberville is blind and that their original family name here was Stokes, but they hatched the plot to just buy the name Durberville from an old extinguished noble family. So in a way, Jack was right. These people have no legitimate claim to the Durberville title and they, they're not Durberville blood. Yeah, and I thought at some point that there might be some sort of contention here. Like, I guess he that that was why he changed the subject at the beginning. But there, yeah. d- d- it appears as though there would be no inheritance right. for the right. money because they if they sold their title, if they sold their name, it's purely an aesthetic that they they wanted to. Well, and the family fancy. was apparently destitute enough to sell their name at the end, so there there wouldn't be anything to inherit that wasn't that didn't belong to the Stokes to begin right. with. Yeah, can you do that? Can you just like sell your family name say you're you're this now well i think you used to be able to sell like lordships and stuff like that Hmm. too it's not possible anymore but you can inherit them another servant approaches the gate and reminds them that someone is waiting on some birds to be delivered tess is tasked with collecting a rooster and has a very tough time of it she was told a very specific one too that one and this one Tess and the vegetable chopper present the birds to the blind Mrs. Durberville, and she looks amazing. I love her. Like, she's kind of cross-eyed, but the eye, the pupils are looking outward from each other, and her eyes are super wide. I just love the way this lady looks. She's able to identify the birds by touch, and she asks Tess if she can whistle. She lies that she can a bit, and she insists that whistling to the birds is very important. Another man in the room says that Master Alec whistled to the chickens this very morning. And it seems Mrs. Durberville is not a fan of Alex. (laughs) We see Tess trying and failing to whistle until Alec interrupts her with his more practiced song. He tells her how lovely she looks, failing to whistle. He coaches her through the lip shapes and breath strength of a proper whistle, and she seems to pick it up rather quickly. Alec tells her that if she has any troubles with this new job to come to him and not dollop. I'm assuming Dollop is the guy that was in the room with Mrs. Durberville. I mm. thought that was the lady chopping vegetables. I don't know. Doesn't matter. There's too many characters in this movie that aren't named, or at least aren't directly named. Hence, Vegetable Chopper Girl. <laughs> we see Tess whistling capably for birds in cages later. Tess waits late into the night for the other servants to finish a party because she doesn't know the roads here and intends to travel with them on their way back to wherever the servants stay. Alec invites her to join him, and she turns him down. The next day, the servants are all walking together when the vegetable chopper notices that the basket she has on her head is leaking. She tries to rub the stain off on a grass hill and is quickly upset by Tess's laughing. She hates Tess because Alec has his eyes on her, and just then, Alec shows up to steal her away. Yeah, but I don't think it's it's related to... I don't think it's jealousy. Right, it, it's more that she... She has favor with him. Yeah, that and, she doesn't yeah. have to work as hard as everybody. Yeah. Because the the rest of the servants at this point, uh, when he shows up, you know, and takes her uh, away from their uh, ridic- yeah. the ridicule and whatever they're they're doing to her, uh, one of the servants says, <laughs> "Out of the frying pan, <laughs> into the fire." <laughs> yeah, 
And I was like, that's such a great way to describe what's she's like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's she doesn't know the trouble she's getting herself yeah, that, into. It's going to be worse yeah. with him. She rides off on the back of Alex's horse and she falls asleep, I think. But then she wakes up in a clearing uh, still on the horse with him. And he informs her that he gifted their family a horse last week. But this is news to her because she hasn't had a chance to actually speak with her family. She tries to express her gratitude, but wishes that she had been able to pay for the horse with her own work. Is that a reproach? He tells her that it's been torture for him since she got here, and so she offers to leave, which he admits would be worse. He's desperately in love with her, and she doesn't seem to return the affection. He tries to force another kiss on her, and she shoves him off the horse. His head is bleeding from where he hit it on the ground, and she cries for having done such an awful thing. They kiss here on the ground, and then Alec rolls her to the ground to begin caressing her and undressing her against her will. A low fog rolls in as he rapes her against the foot of this tree, and we cut to her unwrapping a series of gifts, like fancy hats to pay for the rape. We see them riding in a canoe together across a lake, and later, during a storm at night, Alec is trying to get into her room, but she refuses to unlock it for him. We cut to Tess walking home down a dirt path when Alec rolls up in a carriage to catch her. He claims this dramatic escape wasn't necessary, that nobody would have stopped her from leaving if she simply announced it, and yet here he is, trying to stop her from leaving. Yeah, and just to be clear, when you say she's going home, like, back to her parents. To her parents. She's trying to quit this job. He offers her a ride in the carriage that she obviously doesn't want, but she ends up having to take it, and on the ride home, she begins to cry and wishes out loud that she had never been born, when Alec tells her that she should cheer up because she's beautiful. She should let the world see more of her beauty before it fades. It's the equivalent of telling a girl to smile in 2020. (laughs) He continues to say dumb and insensitive shit to her until she gets out of the carriage and continues down the road on foot. Before they part, Alec reminds her that if she's ever in any trouble, any real trouble, that she can always reach out to him for help. We cut to a crowd of field workers bundling wheat. Tess works among them. When a bell chimes to announce break, everyone takes a seat to enjoy their lunch, and nearby a baby cries until it's handed to Tess for breastfeeding. Evidently this child is hers, likely a product of the rape from Alec earlier, and other field workers make comments that the child is not long for this world. Man, I can't, I mean, being a working mom is hard now. I can't imagine you having to bring a baby to a field while you bundle hay and (laughs) take breaks to feed it. At night, during a rainstorm, the new parson is dispatched to the Derbyfield house to baptize Tess's child before the Lord takes it. At the door, Jack insists that all his children are already baptized, and he slams it in the parson's face. Inside, Tess and her mother beg Jack to let the vicar in, but he can't have any more public embarrassment, so he's going to let her child die and go to hell. Tess prays for her child's mercy. We cut to the next day where the parson is acting as a beekeeper outside of his home, and... Tess arrives and informs the man that she baptized her son herself. He wants to know what method she used, and she says that her younger siblings read from the Bible while she held the baby over a basin and poured water on its forehead. She said, I baptize thee in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and he confirms that she also made the sign of the cross and tells her that that would have been the same as if he'd been there to do it. So the child's soul has been saved. Good job. Then she asks if her son is entitled to a Christian burial, and the parson starts backtracking insisting that that's a decision for the town to make and not him as one person. 
He ultimately refuses this request, and she informs him that she will no longer attend the church, but I don't think he cares. That night, she sneaks into the local cemetery herself to bury her son and lay flowers on his grave. Tess packs her bags and walks down the road to a dairy farm in search of new employment. Apparently, she made good time because they weren't expecting her so soon, and they offer her food and a place to rest so she can get started in the morning, but she wants to start now. Another man working the cows seems new at this, and he's having trouble milking, and steps outside for a break. I like I like this situation a little bit better for her. Yes. Only because, one, that the guy who owns the dairy farm isn't above doing the work himself. Right, and yes. he also seems to be very pleasant, and the people yeah. seem to like him there, too. Yeah. That night, Tess hears someone playing a flute and asks another milkmaid who it is. That's Mr. Clare. Mr. Clare? The guy who was having trouble milking is named Angel Clare, and evidently he's a flautist. It seems Mr. Clare is the son of a parson, but he wants to be a farmer, and he's already tried and failed as a sheep herder, and is halfway through failing at dairy work. He's also not a fan of old families, referring to them as worm-eaten. Tess seems worried this means he won't like her, because she comes from an old family, even though she barely found that out a week ago. <laughs> also, it's not like she's... Riding the coattails of that family. She's not old money. She's super poor. (laughs) The next morning, the dairy workers are all served breakfast. At the breakfast table, one of the girls gets the hiccups, which kicks off a conversation about souls leaving human bodies. Mr. Crick, the owner-operator of this establishment, claims that a soul cannot leave a body unless a person dies, and Tess counters with some blasphemy about staring at the stars at night and feeling as though your soul is floating away from you. And by and by, you feel you falling into the sky, miles and miles from your body, which you don't seem to need at all. Mr. Clare is very taken with this observation, and he has to take his glasses off and lean forward to smile about it. This scene is disorienting. Uh, Like, it's funny because at the time, this would have looked like, oh, they're super poor. They have to, like, be in this communal situation to survive. And But this is also an employer providing breakfast and housing mm-hmm. for yeah <laughs> it's just like it's insane that they're getting paid on top of all this yeah also he says that he can't drink the milk himself anymore yeah <laughs> he's sick of it yeah his stomach can't take it anymore the lactose intolerant dairy farmer <laughs> it happens luckily for tess her comment is punctuated with another loud hiccup and the whole table is set to laughter later tess finds mr claire leaning against a tree playing his flute He notices her as she tries to retreat, and he tells her that she has nothing to fear from him. Back in the dairy, Mr. Crick is having trouble with some of his machinery and is considering seeking the work of a conjurer to fix it. One of the women says, oh, you know what it probably is? I heard that when people are in love, that makes machines not work. So someone here is probably in love. It's not that the machine isn't working. It's that the butter is not coming. Right. So... The, the, the machine was working fine, but for some reason, when they're churning the butter, it's it's the, the or the milk, it's not it's not becoming butter. Mm-hmm. That's like if your toaster was working fine, but the bread wasn't coming up toast. <laughs> Which is why you bring in a conjurer. That yeah. toaster. Is That's why I'm bewitched. saying the machine is clearly having the problem. It's not it's not bewitched milk. <laughs> the workers all swap recommendations of conjurers they know. <laughs> until Mr. Claire enters, and Tess walks out immediately in case her love is breaking this machine. (laughs) That's what it must be. At sunset, Tess is sleeping while all of her roommate milkmaids are watching Mr. Claire out the window. He just stands on a hill staring at the sunset. 
They lament that he'll never marry any of them. The girls are walking down a dirt road when they come to a flooded section and consider switching paths. They're on their way to church, and they don't want to get their church dresses all wet. Right. So they try to climb up around the puddle, but that's not safe. It, they and can't then, go the other way because they'll be they'll late. They'll be late to mm-hmm. church, and then they go to hell. I don't know what happens if you're late to church. Mr. Clare is passing from the opposite side and offers to carry them all across since he has no interest in church. Of the four girls, Izzy seems most infatuated by him and practically faints into his arms when he comes to collect her. Tess tries to make the way herself, but when Mr. Clare finds her trying to climb the sides of the path to avoid him, he admits, Tess, I've gone to three quarters of this trouble for your sake alone. While milking cows in the field, Mr. Clare suddenly stands from his animal and walks to Tess and they start kissing. He confesses his love for her, and she seems shaken by this and leans on her cow for strength. Angel goes to visit with his family for some urgent business and is met at the gate by an old flame or just a girl that he knows and hasn't seen in a long time. I can't tell if they were in a previous relationship or not. I don't I don't think they were. I think they they are family friends. Yeah. And she seems to have associations with the church because she's teaching Sunday school. Right. So she probably works with his dad. Yep. And she has to step away because she has this Bible class to attend to. And her name is Mercy. Yeah, Mercy Chant. That's what it was. This Mercy whole family's Chant. got weird names. <laughs> when Mr. Clare joins his family at the dinner table, they're only half excited to see him. His mother stands for a quick hug, but his father keeps hammering on the importance of holiness. And his brother is just pissed that they haven't heard any news from him in a while. They ask how the dairy work is going and what he intends to do moving forward, and he admits to considering settling in the colonies, which seems to catch everyone by surprise. But he also explains that he hasn't limited his choices to the colonies after having educated himself to the generous offerings of foreign countries like Brazil to farmers like the one he intends to be. After the meal, Mr. Clare speaks with his mother and father about the prospect of marrying, and they both seem very excited. If it were up to them, she would be a God-fearing woman and had to comfort him through all things. He learns here that they assumed his plan was to propose to Mercy Chant, the woman leading the church group at his family's gate on the way in. He tells them that he has his heart set on Teresa Derbyfield and that Mercy Chant will find someone more suited to her needs. Upon his return to the farm, Mr. Clare proposes to Tess immediately. She tells him that she loves him and that she would rather be married to him than anyone in the world, but turns him down nonetheless, claiming she cannot marry him. She reads a letter from her mother urging her to accept his hand, but never tell him of her past. Later, Mr. Clare asks again what's so displeasing about the thought of marrying him, and again she refuses to answer beyond that she cannot marry him. Tess and Angel deliver milk by carriage to a train, taking their milk to London. So this was the first indication to me of what time period this was because i wasn't really sure because of the train yeah i was like i'm I'm not i mean i feel like this could be any time yeah but seeing like a fully functioning train that's going out is like oh okay this isn't even like an early train this is this is a well-established steam engine yeah it's probably late late 1800s yeah yeah i mean i guess i kind of just assumed that era because it's a thomas hardy novel so i i don't know en- enough about his work to to well to... she's a big fan of of far from the madding crowd yeah i love far from the madding crowd so like when i saw his name at the beginning of this i'm like oh all right yeah all right i'll watch this one and i just really like bane <laughs> <laughs> 
She admits to Angel that they've met before and reminds him of that club dance in the field where he was the only one willing to dance with the girls, but he didn't dance with her. On their way back to the farm, Tess plans to tell Angel her full story. Or so I thought. <laughs> she doesn't tell him the full story here. Angel urgently awaits an explanation. She confesses that she belongs to one of the old families that he has such disdain for, the Durbervilles. Angel asks, incredulous, if that's what all the holdup has been. I was told you hated old families. <laughs> Is that all the trouble? He laughs in her face and demands that she accept his proposal now because none of that matters, and she does. That night, she composes a letter admitting more of the truth, that in her employment with the Durberville family, that she was impregnated and bore a son who died. She intends to deliver this letter to Angel to relieve her guilt for having kept it secret. She admits in the letter that his reaction will affect the course of her life, and the next morning she waits outside his door um, after having slipped it under his door. She slipped the note under the door, and she's waiting for him, and he just greets her with a hug and a kiss, and he doesn't say anything about the letter. This is why you always ask for confirmation. Yeah. Make sure somebody got that email. Yeah. <laughs> you need to get tracking. Pay, pay for tracking. Scene at 10. <laughs> yeah. He left her on red. If he found the letter at all, it doesn't seem to affect his opinion of her. They race together through open fields and orchards until they find the sea. And later in the day, she brings a bundle of flowers to his room. She places some in a vase, a few on his bed, and one across his desk. But on her way out, she realizes that the letter she stuffed under the door has actually been pushed under the carpet on the inside, and he never found it at all. She folds the letter in her hand rather than re-deliver it. And... Tess is in a carriage racing to a church for her marriage when Angel, on a second carriage, races around them to beat her to the church. As they pass each other, Tess calls out a desire to confess all of her faults, and he intends to do the same once they're married. I'm so going to tell you all your faults, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to tell you what's wrong with you, Tess. I do really like, though, that on several occasions, she really earnestly tried. She tried... Uh, one time when when he proposed to her and then she waited until the no, day they were getting first, married first she said no yeah and then he was insistent and she was like but she never told him why okay no. and then she wrote the letter and then she was disappointed and a little heartbroken because she got used to him loving her and she yeah. liked it and then she regretted the letter thing and then she's like no 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 i really need to tell him so on their wedding day she tried to tell him again yeah and he didn't let her but there was time between that day and the wedding presumably Pro probably not much you think this is the next morning i mean it might not be the next morning <laughs> but, within but a these week? things happen quickly yeah he already had his parents permission i guess sort of they're not super happy about it in the middle of their vows the priest asks if anyone knows of any reason these two should not be wed let them confess it. Tess reveals nothing here, and the two say their vows, and they take a carriage to a fancy rented room somewhere. The woman of the house they've rented has set them a fire and prepared a full meal. <laughs> set them <Sorry>. aflame. <laughs> the full on Miss Havisham. The end. <laughs> How would you say that, that she has prepared a fire and prepared a meal? That sounds weird. Um prepared She's a fire and a meal stoked the fire no i don't know <laughs> stoked she is super stoked <laughs> she's stoked about your she's visit totally stoked <laughs> but it reminds her of the stokes and she has a panic attack 
She got raped by a stoke. And then half of her face goes numb <laughs> yeah. from her stoke. Sorry, my tongue is messed up. I keep saying stoke. <laughs> Can't use that whole half of my head. The woman of the house they've rented sets them on fire and burns the place down. <laughs> <clears throat> the end. <laughs> the woman of the house that they've rented from has prepared a fire and meal for them. She also left a bottle of wine for them and intends to treat them to her husband's cider in the morning. Cider for breakfast. Hope it's alcoholic. It's the best breakfast cider. She leads them to their bedroom. Back at the dinner table, Tess approaches as Angel is pouring them both glasses of wine. Tess is invited to open a gift of jewelry on the table. These are his family jewels. No, they're just... <laughs> Just jewels. Actual jewelry. Jewelry. <laughs> they called them that before they started calling these hand-me-downs balls. No. It's the other way around. They started calling balls jewels. She's flabbergasted by the gift, and he insists she put them on. He drags her away from the table to the living room to show her her face in a mirror to see how beautiful she is. He announces that he has a confession to make and that he said nothing earlier for fear of losing her, which I think is exactly how she worded it in the letter that he never got. He admits to having engaged in a relationship with an older woman in London years before they met, but it was not a good relationship, and it's over. She informs him of a similar confession, and he urges her to share it at the table, but she says her confession is as important as his was and needn't be made while eating. She explains that she was taken advantage of by a false relative and bore a child who died young, and as she tells him this, she's in focus in the foreground and he's out of focus, leaving us in the dark as to his reaction to this news, at least temporarily. The focus shifts gently back to Angel, and he is slow to stand from his chair. He moves to the fireplace to stoke the wood, and then announces that he's leaving. <laughs> he just gets up and walks out of the house. I'm going out. She follows him outside, and she has him confirm that even though she forgave him, he could not forgive her. How can you? You are not the woman I loved. Well, who am I then? Another woman in her shape. He blames her for not being strong enough to resist against her rapist. He vaguely ties her weakness to his hatred of old families. Like, oh, well, you're just weak because you've had everything spoon-fed to you for your whole life. And it's like, no, 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 my family's been poor my entire life. This has nothing to do with your problem with rich people. You're just grossed out about me having had a child with someone else. She spends her wedding night alone in their room. Angel returns in the middle of the night and sleeps on a couch. He sees the dinner was untouched, spread across the table, and the family jewels have been returned to the case. In the morning, he cleans up, and he invites her down for breakfast. She interrupts a silent breakfast by suggesting a divorce, and he lashes out at her for being immature for even making this suggestion. She starts to collect her breakfast on a tray to eat it somewhere else, and she asks if he would rather leave, and he says probably the shittiest thing so far. I couldn't stay without despising myself. What is worse without despising you? Honestly, she's dodging a bullet by ruining this marriage right away because this guy's a complete asshole. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree with that. But I also feel like it, it's it's they've been married for a day. I, I feel like... He could get over this? No, he could get an annulment. Like, they yeah. didn't consummate the marriage or anything or, you know, whatever they needed to do. They could, they probably could get an annulment. Granted, this would 
is probably still an issue for them in terms of the the views of the town because everybody which knew he this seems happened. to care a lot about yes and it, and I think it means a lot to him because of who his family is I mean this would be a big black mark on his family yeah but who gives a shit yeah but no it's a he, different time he put them both in a much worse position by yes. not finding a better way out of this or by not just buckling down and dealing with it yeah like a human yeah like nobody else needed to know yeah this is between us despite pretending to leave several times angel would rather stay here in this nice house and since they can't both stay here obviously but at least one of them must to keep up appearances he talks tess into just going home and being with her family again angel comes along to drop her off near the family home and as they part ways he tells her to wait for him in case he ever feels like being her husband again. Ugh. And she agrees to these terms for some reason. And then... She asks if she can write to him, and he says, only if you need something, otherwise don't bother, please. In Tessa's absence, Izzy stops by the home where the Claires were staying to offer her congratulations to the newlyweds. Izzy is somebody that she worked with at the, at the dairy, dairy farm. farm. Right. Yeah. yeah, She's the first one that was carried across the puddle. Angel informs her that he's leaving for Brazil, and that for the moment, Tess is staying here while he gets a feel for the country. Before she leaves, Izzy professes her love for Angel as just a last-ditch, might as well take my chance here because I'm not going to see you again. And he considers the offer. Yeah. But uh, but what was she expecting to gain from it? He's a married man. Like, he's a happily married man as far as she understands. Yeah, but she thinks this might be the last time that she sees him if he's going to Brazil and he's the love of her life. So Yeah, I guess take a swing he catches up with her down the road and asks if she'd be willing to come to brazil with him right now with zero notice and she says absolutely but what i don't like about what he then says after that is eve would you come with me to brazil even in what a society would see you as yeah right which i feel like if if he's actually making that as an offer is ridiculous because he just turned down a wife like a legitimate wife because of how society would view him with her right yeah, but, I, but i don't think society would look down on him no for yeah. leaving tess for this girl it, it would so be it's, it wouldn't her. be it wouldn't be a sacrifice to his reputation it would just be like oh he likes ladies he just switches them up this makes me angry yes yeah. yes it <laughs> yes, makes it very angry. <laughs> i'm not convinced that tom hardy wasn't a woman writing these stories <laughs> you know i really like his books and i think that he has incredibly progressive views in yeah. a lot of the way he writes. I mean, to the point where they could, they wouldn't even publish some of his stuff. Yeah. He asks if she loves him and she says that she always has. And he asks if she loves him more than Tess did. And she says, no, because Tess loved you as much as a person could love a person. So I love, I love you exactly as much yeah. <laughs> because we would both, we would both die for you. Or she at least says Tess would have died for you. Yeah. Which is as much as you can love a person. In my opinion, she's she's admitting that I love you, but not as much as Tess. Like, yeah. Te yeah. Like, Tess would be willing to die for you. I don't know if I'm willing to do that. I'm, I'm willing to give up my life for you, but yeah. not literally give up my yeah. life for you. And he's like, okay, bye. And he yeah. just leaves. He yeah. just leaves her on the side of the road. Well, and I'm, and I'm hoping that that stings. I hope that stings real bad to know that no one will love you as much as Tess, and you just fucking blew her off. Yeah. Early one morning, Tess is walking, carrying her things through fog when she is passed by a wealthy hunting team with a bunch of dogs and dudes on horseback. At night, Tess makes a bed for herself out in the wilderness. I don't know where she's going. 
The next day, on the road, she is harassed by a man in a passing carriage who recognizes her as Alec's mistress and calls her a whore for turning him down when he offers her a ride. That night, Tess knocks on the window of her friend from the dairy farm. She is invited in and served a very strong drink. But this woman is no longer at the dairy farm. She was because dismissed. Because of the drinking. <laughs> right. Yeah, she was dismissed for being an alcoholic. Tess intends to resume work at the dairy, but uh, the next day, Tess and her friends start working, digging up the weirdest carrots I've ever seen. I think they're turnips. <laughs> I think well, definitely not carrots. Well, yeah, it, but there's also like just like a pile of stuff, and I don't know if that he says I want this entire thing cleared, and is like, is that what he's talking about? Well, I think they're digging them up out of the field and making a pile. Yeah, and he, he wants her to dig up the rest of the yes. field. Yes, mm. so they want to clear the field, and it seems as though they have to cut the tops off these things. So right. they, so they make a pile and then process them by cutting them and and her argument is that they only get paid for what they pick so it, it shouldn't make a difference <laughs> yeah exactly yeah but she's she's a lazy worker taking up space and oh great her boss here is that shitty guy that called her a whore yesterday on the road that night she sneaks out again and she kneels to pray at a rock called the cross and hand which is exactly where angel dropped her off months ago a passerby warns her that praying here is useless because the site is cursed by a man who was put to death with his hand nailed to this stone. Mm. And there's a big handprint on the rock, presumably from when they did this to the was guy. It, I couldn't understand. Was he saying cross in hand or crossing hand? Cross and hand. Oh, because I thought they were saying the crossing hand. And I was like, what's a crossing hand? I thought it was, I, I also thought it was crossing hand, but crossing hands. Uh, like, yeah. like hands no. over hands. Cross and hand. <laughs> Tess comes to a house and rings the doorbell, but no one answers. Nearby, a church lets out. This is the church where her father-in-law is the parson, and it seems like they recognize her approaching and lock the place up real tight to avoid this awkward conversation with her. Alec shows up on horseback at her work and has a muted conversation with Mr. Groby, the guy who called her a whore. He sends Tess to speak with Alec, and Alec informs her that he received a letter from her mother. He knows everything that happened, and he wants to take her away from this wretched place. When she refuses his advances, he starts to threaten her family's livelihood by pointing out that her father is very ill, and if he dies, they will surely be evicted and destitute. I'm offering you my help sincerely. No one else seems to care. Who is this husband of yours anyway? If this help is so sincere, and you really do care, then you go do that without any strings attached. Go save my family, and I'm going to continue working here at this retarded carrot farm. <laughs> Well, and, and when they're when they're using like I guess it's a I guess it's a thresher, but it's a thresher yeah. that you have to load manually rather than yeah. actually yeah. goes through the field. But that mm -hmm. looked very high tech too. Yeah, it, it was, but it was cool because like you had the, it had the steam engine and the belts and yeah. yeah. And but then they had people inside of the thing, yeah, yeah. Like spreading the the hay out. And I I thought for sure when that guy puts the lantern yeah. up there, I was like, oh well, this here is we not go. A good idea. It this was is, an ominous yeah. lantern placing. <laughs> She also sh should have said to Alec before he left, oh, and by the way, the husband who left me, he left me because you raped me. So you're both assholes. Yeah. Tess continues to work in the field, processing wheat late into the night. I get the distinct impression something terrible is about to happen. Yeah. <laughs> we keep cutting close on the machinery and action and this insert of this lantern. And then Tess's friend is standing above the work, tipping back and forth with drunkenness. Mm -hmm. And the machine wears to a stop for the end of the night. And Tessa's friend takes one last swig out of her bottle. Thankfully, not having fallen into the machinery tonight, at least. Yeah, it was like, 
there were like too many Chekhov's yeah. guns here. And yeah, they... I was sure she was just going to fall into the machine and that was going to be the Set last all draw the for Tess. on fire. Mm-hmm. Alec has been seated in a chair for this entire workday and approaches her now. He asks if she's addicted to this drudgery and when he lights into her husband again, she slaps him. She dares him to hit her and before he leaves, he reminds her that he was her master once and he'll be her master again. <laughs> Sorry. It was pretty funny. <laughs> it reminds me of so many lines like you know you will bow before me with Jorel, and if not you your ass yeah um but for some reason my immediate go-to was from the other guys of dirty mike and the boys we will have sex in your car again it will happen (laughs) it's basically like this scene that night she writes another letter in a long line of letters to angel i have to assume that she's taking these to a post office somewhere and just saying send this to angel i think <laughs> i have no idea i doubt angel left a forwarding address at the post office for just to the brazil. Word brazil. <laughs> brazil we flash forward a bit and tessa's father is gone she rides in a carriage with her mother and siblings and all their stuff again alec harasses her to accept his help and again she tells him to fuck off when they get to the town they're headed to tessa's mother finds out that the room they thought they had reserved has been given away in the absence of payment she tries to guilt the man into giving them the rooms for free but it's no use it seems like tessa's mom is just as obsessed as her dad was with being a durberville and keeps using the family name like it's some sort of golden ticket to free shit it has not worked once except for that job where she got raped so maybe stop calling yourself durbervilles she tells her children to unpack the carriage when it stops in front of a local church because she intends to just live in a makeshift fort outside until people are outraged enough at the treatment of the Durbervilles. Tess goes inside the church and finds many Durberville coffins. She laments being alive for the third or fourth time in the film at the gate of a mausoleum. I'm on the wrong side of this door. Suddenly, in the middle of the night, Angel returns to town and awakens his parents, looking like Vincent van Gogh. Apparently, he's had a rough go of it out in Brazil, and he requires medical injections because he shakes he reads a fat stack of hate mail from tess that's just been piling up unresponded to he sets out to find her starting at her family home turns out they don't live there anymore and he goes to the cemetery to find john durberville's headstone and see if anybody knows where the family ended up somehow this leads him to the new home of the family mother tells him that tess is no longer here and she wouldn't want to see you either way he asks where she is all the same and she points him to the city of Sandborn. It's a large town, but Mom can't get any more specific, so he just heads there immediately. He speaks with some locals who direct him to the only Durberville they know of. Angel knocks on the door early well, in the morning. Any locals? He ask the post office. Right. They're locals. Angel knocks on the door early in the morning and is let in by an older woman. She offers to wake Tess and deliver the message that Angel is here to see her. Tess comes downstairs and is not as happy to see him as he is to see her. It turns out she lives here with Alec now, and Angel has taken way too long to come back. He claims to have suffered also, though he did his suffering by choice yeah, I, after forcing her suffering. Uh, during this scene, it's like, I've suffered too. If you would have seen what I was doing when I was watching this, I just had my middle finger pointed <laughs> yeah. up at, at the screen of the movie. She's like, I had to turn down so many hot Brazilian ladies because they didn't love me enough to die i waited and waited for you and you didn't come i wrote you and you didn't come she implores angel to leave immediately and never come back 
After Angel leaves, the woman who let him in finds Tess crying in her room. Evidently, Tess spends so much of her marriage crying that Alec can't even tell that anything specific is wrong. He asks for her to be cleaned up later for lunch with the Bennetts, and he intends for her to play a genuine Durberville for them. We cut to Angel waiting at the train station and then back to the house where Tess is escaping as quickly as she can. She's about to make another horrible decision. The older woman who let Angel in is confused by Tess's sudden exit and looks up at the ceiling to notice a spreading puddle of blood that's staining the ceiling. It's dripping through the floor from above. I've read this book and I forgot how it ends and I'm suddenly hoping that it ends with her killing both of these guys. <laughs> <laughs> One down, one to go. <laughs> nope. She's hugging Angel at the train station. Great. She confesses to Angel, which didn't go well last time, that she just killed her husband <laughs> and that they can finally run away together. Of course, now that Angel has a completely valid and rational excuse to run away from this person to Brazil, <laughs> he decides he will stay by her side through whatever follows. He's like, yeah, I made I made a commitment. I said that I would forgive you. Yeah, for anything. Angel talks her through the plan of escape. They head north on foot and live a permanent picnic life, eating food and drinking wine out of the wilderness. Tess and Angel eventually come upon an abandoned mansion. They break a window to enter and make their way to the master bedroom. They're finally able to relax for the first time since reuniting. They begin to kiss and continue kissing as they roll over each other across the carpet and the two have sex in the big bed of this house. The next morning, an old woman enters the mansion they're squatting in, and as she moves around the house, she's opening all the windows and finds one broken. Later, she finds this nude couple in her bed, and she can't open the door all the way because they've barricaded it. Yeah. But she can see what's happening. Yeah, it's like like nice barricade that some old lady can open. Yeah. I mean, they had the forethought to barricade the door, but not enough to the point. Yeah, it, yeah. Should, it should take about 10 pounds of pressure to get the <laughs> yeah. door open. Angel sees the old woman booking it down the road, and tells Tess, it's time to go. We got to get out of here. <laughs> Tess, go get her. Yeah. <laughs> You're on the hook for the last kill. <laughs> Tess wonders aloud what the point of running is when they'll be caught in weeks anyway. It's only a matter of time. And Angel insists he can protect her forever. He walks her to Stonehenge, and they decide to live at Stonehenge. <laughs> they comes fully furnished with enormous stone benches. She asks if they can stay the night here, and he says, uh, it's visible for miles around. It's probably not a good place to stay. So they stay the night there anyway. <laughs> and in the morning, they're approached by two police officers on horseback immediately. Yeah. Even even though the visibility is like 100 it's, feet. Yeah, it's super yeah, it's foggy out foggy. here. <laughs> Why would they guess Stonehenge? <laughs> uh, there's more people on the way. An escape is unlikely. Angel is able to negotiate, letting Tess sleep a little bit, but she's awake almost instantly. For how many times he promised to protect her from the police, Angel really doesn't put up a fight at all with these men. He's just like, okay, yeah, let her sleep for a second, but then, yeah, take her away. She surrenders willingly to the police, and we cut to a shot of Stonehenge as the sun rises behind it, which was its original purpose to chart the risings the and settings of the sun. Uh, a title card reads, Tess of the Durbervilles was hanged in the city of Wintonchester, a four-time capital of Wessex. The full cast credits unfurl again over the police marching Angel and Tess into the foggy distance away from Stonehenge. This is actually an exact replica of Stonehenge, constructed somewhere that wouldn't extradite Polanski for child rape. Mm. Oh, God. And that's the end of our film. Yeah. 
she i um i made the mistake of getting about halfway through this movie and reading ahead uh-huh and i was like oh great so absolutely nothing good happens to this woman her yeah. entire no. life yeah, yeah. this that's is the point yep that was worthwhile i <laughs> liked it yeah no i mean <laughs> i i like the story that it tells i feel sorry for this person i think she makes a very bad decision going back to angel at the end yeah but at that point she's lost it and at least she's gonna take him down with her yeah does she does he i mean he, he yeah, doesn't I say that he was fine. hanged yeah he wasn't hung he he's just harboring a fugitive he's married yeah, to he's a, a crazy dude. murderer he's a dude and the fugitive was a girl they'd be like all right give us your girlfriend back go home I'm I sure. guarantee you he didn't go to jail at all. I don't know. And being the son of a parson, all that all that shit plays out and he Every walks. time I say the word parson, I like to pretend I'm just saying person with an Irish accent. <laughs> parson. <laughs> Writer-director Roman Polanski was at one point slated to direct the first Deadly Sin earlier this year, but that was derailed when he fled the U.S. rather than serve time for raping a child. We detailed that case in our review for First Deadly Sin, so we won't retread here that Polanski raped a child. He received an Oscar while in exile for The Pianist. He's also responsible for directing The Tenant, Carnage, The Ninth Gate, and Chinatown. Writer Gerard Brock previously wrote Bitter Moon for Polanski. He also wrote Frantic and The Name of the Rose, starring Henry Jones Jr. and Sr. respectively. Writer John Brownjohn has a neat name. This was his first screenplay. He's also a credited writer on Bitter Moon. He wrote Ninth Gate for Polanski. He has miscellaneous crew credits on Name of the Rose and The Pianist. Name, Novelist, of, the Rose, sorry, Name of the Rose is great. Yeah, I know you like that one. I think we have a 35mm trailer for that when we bought a different one it came oh, with. Oh, yeah. That. I think you're right. Novelist Thomas Hardy. Uh, he has 10 adaptations of Tess of the D'Urbervilles dating back to 1913. There are five adaptations of Far From the Madding Crowd, five adaptations of The Mayor of Casterbridge, three adaptations of The Woodlanders, and a bunch more. Tony Church was Parson Tringham. He played Turold in Krull. Natasha Kinski played Tess. She's the daughter of Klaus Kinski, who we had earlier this year in Schizoid. She's also Irina Gallier in Cat People. She's Jane Henderson in Paris, Texas, and Colette Andrews, the mother in the movie Father's Day. I think she did a great job here. She's I, fantastic, yeah. Um, for very early performance for her, too. Yeah, and I mean, I don't want to say anything bad about Sharon Tate, but I think that this was a good, it was, a, it, it, I mean, th- this was good casting, because I don't yeah. know that Sharon Tate, like, in my mind, when I think of Sharon Tate, I don't think of her in this kind of role. Yeah. Well, and she, I mean, had she lived. Uh, they probably would have made it a decade earlier. That's true. Peter Firth played Angel Clare. He was Colonel Colin Kane in Life Force. He's Ivan Putin in Hunt for Red October and Alan Strang in Equus. Lee Lawson played Alec Durberville. He's Humphrey in Sword of the Valiant, The Legend of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, along with Peter Firth, who provides the voice of Gawain. Not sure the story there, but for some reason Gawain needed to be dubbed over, and they dubbed over the secondary character with the voice of the other boyfriend from this movie. Leslie Dunlop played Girl in Hen House. She's also Nora in The Elephant Man earlier this year. Jacques Mathau played The Harvester. He was Roger in Delicatessen. 
Fred Bryant was Derryman Crick. He'll be back as the vicar in For Your Eyes Only next year. John Barrett played Old Dairy Hand. He's Joseph Poorgrass in the 67 Far From the Madding Crowd. Anne Terrard played Old Dairy Hand. She's Miss Marsh in Perfect Friday and Lady Number One in The Witches. These are all very European titles that we're yeah. going through. <laughs> Carolyn Pickles played Marion. That's the girl I think that got fired for drinking. She plays Shopper in The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. She plays Charity Burbage in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows Part 1. And she's Marsha in The Spy Who Dumped Me, directed by our friend Susanna Fogel. Susanna Hamilton played Izzy. She's also Julia in 1984 and Felicity in Out of Africa. Yeah, I, I definitely enjoy the film. It's very pretty. It's very well acted. Um, the story is harsh, but yeah. that's how the story goes. Um, yeah, I liked it. I I was dreading it going in because I was like, I don't remember how long it is, like two hours and 40 some minutes or something. Yeah, something like that. And I was like, oh, I don't want to watch this. And then I got reinvigorated when I saw Thomas Hardy's name at the beginning. And then it moves at a pretty fast clip. Too. I wasn't bored. I, it, I, I enjoyed it the whole time. Um, yeah, for, yeah, for a three hour story, it never really slows down for no, any part. It of didn't it. it didn't feel it didn't feel that long at all. Yeah. It fell horribly long. <laughs> I, Richard is mistaken. Th- this movie did not do it for me. Um, I, 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 I was just getting like more and more depressed as I was watching it, and 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 I, and I get it that that's that's the story. It's a sad story, um, but it doesn't endear the movie to me in any in any way, shape, or form. Some people watch movies for the depression, and Richard's not one of those people. He doesn't watch a movie to make himself sad. I don't know that I would say I'm one of those people either. No, I enjoyed it, and I'm not necessarily one of those people, but I'm less turned off by a movie making me sad than yeah. Richard is. Yeah. It's a story, though, not yeah. one of those damn slice of life things. Yes. Yeah, this person's life is affected in major ways, and uh, especially when suddenly there's blood pooling yeah, on the ceiling. there's an arc. It's like, how have I read this book multiple times and forgotten this part? And and how did she kill him in such a way that he is just pooling oh, massive amounts of blood? Because of the sliced meats. Oh. Did, did we not, we introduce okay, so when they're up having breakfast, there is again a giant hunk of meat with this massive knife sitting on she picks the table and uh no, I think he picks it up and like slices off a big chunk of it and uh I'm sure that's what she killed him with. Yeah. But also the way they constructed ceilings back then, it's um, fabric ceilings, yeah it's yeah. yeah it's like the 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 ceiling isn't paint and plaster it's fabric yeah. and there's you know wood slats above it and it's just leaking through yeah but they could have like cut upstairs and she just tipped over a bottle of wine on her way out it's not even <laughs> blood she's lying to test uh her new boyfriend which is actually her old boyfriend which was actually her new boyfriend <laughs> sure. keep flipping it around um yeah uh it's an up for me. It's an up for me. That's uh, a down. Uh, I, uh, letterboxed, where do you have it, Richard? Um, I have this uh, right next to Nijinsky. Um, so I have it at 71, which puts it below Heartbeat and above Nijinsky. I liked it better than Nijinsky. Yeah. All right, Jess, where's it going? So I have this in 15th. <laughs> I have it just below Kagimusha and just above Night of the Juggler. 
I have it in 19th, which is just above Zombie Flesh Eaters or Zombie 2 or Zombie, depending on who you are, and just under Stardust Memories. So I'm keeping my creepy directors right next to each other. Oh, so nice. They can have friends. They can touch each other <laughs> in inappropriate ways. No, they wouldn't like that. They need young women. I don't know what they like. <laughs> I, won't, I won't speak to what they like. I think that's everything for this one. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Letterboxd. Or as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Any Which Way You Can which IMDb describes like so. A trucker turned prize fighter, his brother, and their pet orangutan have a series of misadventures involving the mob, corrupt cops, motorcycle gangs, and pretty dames. We leave you now with any which way you can. It's on! What? The fight! They're coming from every which way they can, any which way they can, because they're on to a sure thing. Clinton, Clyde, or back in any which way you can. Breaker, breaker, one nighter, there's a good news channel. It's on, the fight is on! Faster, funnier, and feistier than ever. <laughs> hey, Beto! It's that! Right turn, Clyde. He's big. Yeah, he's sizable. They said he beat everybody in the Marine Corps. Clint is one tough dude who won't be trifled with most of the time. There's one too many women in your life. I think I love you. And neither will Clyde. Come back here with my Oreos, yeah. Well, now they're up against it one more time. They're bashing barroom bully boys. Clyde, scrap the caddy. They're mauling malicious mobsters. And they're battling bizarre bikers. All right, then, let's start doing something. Stomping them all. And most of all, facing down the meanest mangler. The brawniest brawler of them all. One Jack Wilson. It's the most knuckle-busting, gut-wrenching, brain-scrambling, butt-bruising, lip-splitting brawl of all time. It's a fight to remember. Clint Eastwood turned you every which way but loose before. Now you can bet he'll do it again. See him and the whole gang. Any which way you can. It's a sure thing. Any which way you can.